women were respect who could chart their own course and do their own fan act, fanish activity, were still very respected, and I was one of them. And nobody said boo to me. If I chose to do something enterprising and productive, people said, "Wow, Lee Gold is enterprising and productive," and respected me. Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow, and with me is Lee Gold. Now, Lee has had an amazing career. Uh, just a few of the things that you can see. Barry is along with her. Say hi, Barry. Hi, hi. <laughs> uh, Lee has had an amazing career. Um, she's authored Lands of Adventure, the RPG, Land of the Rising Sun, uh, Japanese supplement, uh, GURPS Japan. And uh, she's more recently started writing a trilogy, and she's already got two books of Valhalla written. And probably most importantly, and one of the things I really wanted to talk to Lee about was alarms and excursions, the zine, which I have copies of, which has been publishing now since 1975 and has only missed four months in that entire time, which is an incredible feat. So Lee, we're going to talk all about that. But first of all, just welcome and thank you for joining me today. Sure. Uh, so let's just start off at the very beginning. How on earth did you get involved in this crazy little world of science fiction fantasy writing? Well, okay. Science fiction fantasy rising. It started with writing Doomed Lensman. Um, once upon a time, a long, long time ago, when my friends and I first got together and decided to start, before we came to Lost was the, thir the very first time, we decided to start writing a fancy. And we named our fanzine the Third Foundation in honor of Isaac Asimov. And we decided to start with issue number 77. <laughs> so we faked it yeah. with letters and comment of last issue, which hadn't existed. We had answers to last issue's quiz, which hadn't existed. And I said, we're starting a new serialized story. And they said, you can write the first installment. I said, thank you so very much. And uh, I wrote Doomed Lensman. It's on the web. Yeah still and one of our one of the members uh wrote drew illustrations and i had always found villains interesting so i arranged to kill off the heroes i loved the lensman heroes but that was all right it was interesting to killing them off so i took uh 
Have you read the Lensman series? I, no, them? I haven't. Sorry. In that case, I won't talk about it very much. <laughs> I killed off the heroes. Yeah. And it was about a novelette in length. What, Barry? About 40,000 words or More so. More like 20,000, 25,000. I think it was longer, whatever. So I, I had a lovely time killing off all the wonderful heroes and arranging for my favorite villain to win. My favorite villain from a different series. And it was fun. So that was my first novel. And, Novelette, whatever. And when did the uh, idea... That, that of... was in 67, 68. And I serialized it through a number of issues. And when did you first discover Dungeons and Dragons in that concept? Oh, that was in 75. A friend of ours... Uh, her name was Hilda Hannafin then. She lived in San Francisco with her husband. Uh, they phoned us up and they said, hi, Lee. Hi, Barry. We came down here because uh, Hilda's parents said that her father might be dying, but he's not dying. So we have some spare time. And we thought we've been writing an L about uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And since Hilda's father's not dying, we thought we would uh, come over to your home and introduce you to D&D. &D. And we said, great. So they came over and Hilda brought out her dungeon and she said, since this is your first game and uh, running a level one player uh, character is boring, we're going to roll dice. Oh, good. We're, each of you will get two characters and you can have them be four, uh, level four through level six. Okay. And I said, this is wonderful. And Owen said, what I'm going to let you do is we'll give you a Xerox copy of the rules so you can make up your own dungeon if you give me your solemn promise that you will send a check right now. I want to see you write the check and put it in an envelope to TSR to buy your own copy of the rules. I said, okay. So I wrote a check and put it in a stamped envelope to TSR and Barry went off and mailed it. And uh, Owen gave me, lent me a copy of the rules. And they came down again in a few weeks and picked up the copy of the rules because I'd gotten the brown book, the brown box. I don't know if you ever saw the brown box. Do you still have this that by the, chance? Yeah, it's rather beat up. I yeah. mean, it has been 47 years. Barry, you could go and pick up the boxes on the floor of the midroom. Uh, someone beat up and the books are still on the first shelf of very beat up. Shelf of the shelves that run across the um, midroom wall. Okay. And Barry then, about six months later, bought his copy of the rules, which are, I think, second edition and aren't nearly as beat up. I read my rules and read them and read them and read them <laughs> because I was GMing. And we would throw games every I think every few weeks, maybe once a month, and people would come over. And sometimes I would be uh, DMing in 
the living room and Barry would be off in a spare bedroom. And he would come in and say, the player characters have come into the elevator. Is anyone in the elevator? And I would say, why, yes, there's a barbarian with a skin full of rot gut wine in the elevator who's looking to sell it. And the elevator was powered by a bunch of giant squirrels. And you rolled 2d8 to see how many giant squirrels were running the elevator to see how much they could lift because it took two giant squirrels for a mule or a horse, but only one for a human being or something else of about that size. And I would tell him how many giant squirrels were on the job. And, you know, we, it, it was a rather strange, you may have noticed that. Would, what was your first? Oh, kind this, of... is, this is what this looks like. Oh, wow. And, um, oh, oh, God. Yes, this is this is what my Dungeons and Dragons looks like these days. Well, and you know, those are worth a lot of money great. nowadays. I'm not giving it up. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is my Dungeons and Dragons. So, quick and question for you. It's, it's it's full of scribbles. A yeah. question for you is when you first played it, and you're a science fiction fantasy fan in general. Well, we changed and, everything. We supplemented everything. But but was it kind of nice that you're actually playing in the world? Like, what was your first reaction to discovering Dungeons and Dragons? It's full of typos. <laughs> I mean, that was my first reaction, and and it needs, it it needs whole bunches of things. Uh, is my first reaction. Uh, my second, re you know, obviously it's lots of fun, but also obviously, my God, why didn't they proofread it? <laughs> uh, um, well, okay. The first thing I did was put my name on it because they all looked alike and everybody was picking up their own rules. And I know there are people who don't write in rule books, and I'm so sorry about that. But I was underlining and I was scribbling. Uh, well, it just shows that it was loved and used, which well, I always it was appreciate. Loved and used, and a couple a couple of years later, chivalry and sorcery came out. And I thought a world, not just a dungeon. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want this one. And we moved over to chivalry and sorcery. But for a while, yes, I was a D&D &D dungeon master. And when and, did you, when did you oh, first get the idea to write your own game? Well, started let's see it started after we were in japan in 75 and when we came back i started writing about things one could do with chivalry and sorcery with japan now by then symbolist and backhouse were contribute oh, let me go back in 75 I had started Andy because people were contributing to APL. APL was, was collated every week 
had been started. Barry, do you remember when APL was started? 1964. Thank uh, you. October. APL was started in 1964 before I came to Los, the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. And it was going strong when I got to Las Fisp, uh in 67, August 17th, and met Barry. And Barry and I got married August 18th in 69. So two years almost two, almost two years to the date. Yeah. And... Uh, I met Barry August 17th of 67, and that midnight he came down, sat on the stairs of the Las Vegas Clubhouse, of the, well, really of the uh, place where the club was meeting then, and sang me one of my songs that I'd written. Aww. And two years and eight hours, 10 hours later, we got married, but he did not sing a song at our wedding. Oh, well. <laughs> and then in 75, people started writing about role-playing in APL. More and more of us, not a whole bunch at first, just a few paragraphs here, a few paragraphs there. The old-time fans started saying, there's so much talk about role-playing here. You people should take it and go somewhere else. Start your own app up. And sulking. And eventually I said, well, if that's really how you feel, I said, I'll start another app. So I took a stage direction from Shakespeare. I've got an MA in English Lit. And starting an app isn't that hard. And so I did. And for and those that don't know what an APA is? It's an amateur press association, APA. People contrib contribute zines to it. That means it's not a zine. It's an APA. You can read up about it on Wikipedia. Um, so it's a collection of zines. It's a collection of scenes. Each person writes his own, his or her, or their, nowadays, own contribution, which is totally under that writer's control. All the editor does is to edit, to print it, to uh, collate it, to mail it out. Nowadays, email or stale mail it out. And in a few cases to say, that's liable, I'm not going to print it. I haven't had to do that often. I've very, very seldom had to do it at all, but it's there as a legal responsibility because people do occasionally insult each other and sometimes very very rarely it rises to a level where you have to say this is getting far too nasty here cool it <laughs> and, and does it go back and forth essentially like they have their opinion in one issue and then it just keeps carrying forward from issue to issue 
Sometimes you get arguments. Sometimes the arguments start getting a little too much and the editor has to step in because that's what editors do. Well, I'll tell you what doesn't happen. Do you remember, have you ever read The Dragon? Yeah. Yeah. Then you notice The Dragon sometimes didn't have a an issue appear for several months. That's what Andy didn't have happen because I never promised articles and then said, oh, that article isn't here yet. Yeah. I only published what I had. I only promised what I had. I remember one gaming convention when someone was asking, and I don't remember which Dragon editor was there, why do that come out on time? And they said, well, we promise next issue is going to have this or that wonderful article, and then we don't get it on time. And one of my, I had about six or seven ADers sitting there, and they said, Lee, why don't why doesn't that happen to you? And I said, because I don't promise things unless I have them. I'm just like John Campbell. <laughs> John Campbell looks at what he's got, and he that's all he says. Sometimes in in the in certain times, I would be saying we have fifty or eighty pages. I don't have that anymore, but I would be saying in certain days we've got back seeds of 50 or 80 pages and they will be appearing eventually but right now I'm only going to be having 150 pages in an issue because if I have more than that they'll be charging us too much money for postage (laughs) and I will not pay more than one pound for postage because that costs too much Nowadays, uh, postage is typically 8 to 12 ounces, so I don't run into that problem. Nowadays, a lot of people are getting stuff uh, email, which is even cheaper. But in those days, I was getting a lot of people sending things from Australia, from Britain, from Norway. I don't have that anymore. And to be honest, it's easier on me. It's easier on Barry who gets to staple. But then we were getting a huge number of contributors. And then all of a sudden, they started sending their contributions to magazines like Different Worlds that would actually pay the money to contribute, (laughs) which is certainly more understandable if you're a capitalist, which I am. And I thought, how wonderful. It's easier. Uh, so can I ask yeah. you a quick question? Sure. So in the early days of Dungeons and Dragons um, and, you know, the stereotype of it's like a bunch of geeky males and women in the industry were pretty rare. Uh, what was it like for you to kind of. I never noticed that days. I was not doing that particular segment of gaming. I was in science fiction fan gaming, and I try explaining this to people, and they don't seem to understand. This was people, you're thinking of gamers who were in high school, maybe even junior high, who were war gamers, which is another segment of the population. 
science fiction fans. Did you ever read Highlines, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress? No, unfortunately, okay. I'm, I'm not as well I recommend read. it as a wonderful book, but he was talking about people who were adults in a world that was perhaps 5%, 10% of the most women who appreciated women. And they, nobody did anything disrespectful to women because that was a world that was culturally respectful and desirous of women. I was in a science fiction fan world where women were respected. And then all of a sudden, in came Star Trek. And there were more women. Well, there were more girls, at least. But women, women were who could chart their own course and do their own fan act, fanish activity, were still very respected, and I was one of them. And nobody said boo to me. If I chose to do something enterprising and productive, people said, wow, Lee Gold is enterprising and productive and respected me. I never ran into anybody in science fiction fan, fan act in science fiction fandom activity that didn't respect me. Uh, when I went to, I never attended a TSR convention and I have to explain that too. I never attended a war gaming uh, convention. I only attended origins conventions to demonstrate my new published games. The only thing I ever experienced along the lines you're thinking of, and I do have to mention this, when I signed, went to sign the contract for Land of the Rising Sun, and this is fascinating, I think, my publisher, my would-be publisher, took out his contract and said, now Lee, I do have to tell you that mo all the women I know want to publish their games as by themselves and their husbands. And I said, well, I don't care. I didn't write the game with Barry. I wrote it all by myself. Gary proof, Barry proofread it, and Barry did the index. And I gave Barry full credit for proofreading it and for doing the index in the game. I didn't help him proofread it, and I didn't help him do the index. But I am not going to say that the book was, that the game was by him, because it wasn't. I wrote the game all by myself. And if you want to, say that I wrote the game with him, then I won't sign the contract. And he said, but everyone else says it. And I said, I don't care what everyone else says. Either you won't publish the game or you'll publish the game as by Lee Gold and nobody else. And, 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 and you stuck to your guns. Well, I 
didn't have a gun, but that was what I told him <laughs> in about that firm tone of voice. And I said, you know, I've been doing A and E for a long time now. Barry, what date is the, did this game get published? Barry has better eyes than I do. When what what's the copyright date date on that thing? 1980. Okay, so Land of the Rising Sun came out in 1980 by Lee Gold. Not by Lee and Barry Gold. Certainly not by Barry and Lee Gold, just by Lee Gold. Of course, that was five years after A&D started. Mm -hmm. So I had some publicity. Uh, I gave the uh, Scott Bazaar of Fantasy Games Unlimited gave me a discount where I could buy cop offer a and ears a discount to buy it and I did and I went to an origins convention and my poor Barry got some sort of I won't say plague but he came down with a fever the first day the day the first day we were there the day I was going to demo the game. And it wasn't a high fever. It was what, about 100? 101. 101. And I said, well, good luck to you. I have a game to demonstrate. <laughs> and I left him in the hotel room. And I picked up my dice bag and my game and whatever. And I set off for the uh, hotel, the, the uh, convention center, and there it, it was. They were selling shirts that said, I am a war game widow. And a, I'm tempted to say a kid, a boy who looked about oh, 16 came over and said, are you carrying those books for your husband? I said, no, I'm carrying them for myself. I'm about to demonstrate taking them to a room where I'm going to demonstrate a game I wrote. He said, could I carry them for you? I said, yeah. So we set off and found the room. It was a lovely room. There was this table with chairs around it and the ceiling, the ceiling came down over the table so that if you threw your head back and said, wahaha, it echoed. <laughs> and I got this lovely echo out of it. And I said, thank you very much. Uh, the game will be starting in 20 minutes. So now all I have to do is set everything up. And he said, do you think your husband would mind if I kissed you on the cheek? I said, that's the wrong question. He said, oh, what, what, what is the right question? I said, the right question is, would you mind? And he blushed bright red and said, would you mind if I kissed you on the cheek? I said, no, you may kiss me on the cheek. And he kissed me on the cheek and turned bright red and ran out of the room after putting my books down. 
Barry is laughing hysterically. <laughs> it was probably the first time he'd kissed anybody but his mummy on the cheek. I have no idea what happened to this boy. I never saw him again. Well, maybe uh, he'll maybe he'll hear this and uh, he'll contact us. Never ran into him again, but that's my memory. And and you know, my friends, people came in for the game demo. Half of whom I knew by seeing them in print and the other half I actually knew by face and we ran the demo and occasionally when the big villain came in I threw my head back and said <laughs> and the ceiling echoed it was beautiful and uh I guess I I heard or I've read read I should say the story of your first or only maybe interaction with Gary Gygax. Oh, well, that was a shame. And um, I never met him face to face. He phoned, I, I sent him the first few copies of A&E. And after a few months, he phoned up. And he, I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And he said, this is Gary Gygax. And I said, oh, wow, Mr. Gygax, how nice. This is Lee Gold. I wanted to tell you how much we've been enjoying your game and yammer, yammer, yammer. And he said, you're a woman. <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am. And uh, he said, I, I said some bad things about women role players. And I said, that's all right. You don't have to be embarrassed. I have never read them. And uh, he said, you're a woman. And I, you know, uh, I said, we're really enjoying playing Dungeons and Dragons. I hope, I assume you noticed that if you've got the issues of A&E I've been sending you and we've had, we've been having such fun with it. And yammer 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 and he said you're a woman and uh that was pretty much our conversation for about three or four minutes you're a woman and i finally said well it's been nice talking to you and hung up on him because he couldn't seem to get past it and and then um so you kept publishing a and e yep. for all these years Yep. And I mean, it's been about 46 years now. And during that time, like month in and month out, do you have regular contributors? Do you have yes, people of that, course. do you have people that have been contributing right from the beginning that are still contributing? No, no. Uh, some, some people have gone away and some people unfortunately have died. And, uh, but, I'm trying to think some people have gone away and come back. And occasionally I'll get emails. Uh, Dearly, I don't, you probably don't remember me, but back in the middle 70s, I used to contribute to A&E. One guy, and one guy wrote, I had a house fire and all my old A&Es burned. Is there any way, could I get copies of these issues? And we had this wonderful, we, we called it the Great Shimizu PDFing Drive. Uh, Dan Shimizu decided somewhere 
back about five or six years ago, all issues of A&E should be scanned. And he took it on as a personal project. And he paid money. He used wiles and, and drive to get people to lend him issues of old A&Es. He bought issues of old A&Es, whatever. And now all issues of A&E have been scanned. When he finally came down to the last, I don't know, few he didn't he hadn't done i went up to my front bedroom closet and said i will lend you these i will not allow you to do the destructive scanning you have been doing where you allow people to scan them by i don't have words to say my opinion of this he was allowing a firm to save him money by scanning things, by tearing them into little tiny bits and throwing out the pieces, hmm. which I thought was evil. And I said, you will return these to me in the same condition I'm lending you these in. And he said, that will cost more money. I said, I don't care. I saved these from the old days and I want them back. And I got them back. But in any case, uh, we now have copies of all the issues, which is good. And I, I told this guy who had lost his old A&Es in a fire, anyone who ever contributes to A&E gets the PDFs of those issues with his contributions for free. And he was freaked, but that's my editorial policy. And if I send them to you and you lose them because you forgot to put them on your hard drive, you get them again for free. I like to think of myself as nice. Yeah. Well, and the most impressive part, obviously, is the length that you've been publishing with only a few minor blips. And those were all calculated, whether you were in Japan or at a convention and you and you were able to let people know in advance, but right. to put that out month after month after month for all I these years. It, yeah. It's that's an impressive feat. Is it perhaps the longest running uh, APA or zine? Apple. I'll call it a zine. It's not a zine. Yeah. The zines are the individual contributions. It's not an APA. It's an APA. Uh, these are old fanish terms and I'm an old fan. I got into <laughs> fandom in 67 and I'm going to use these terms even if you think they're obsolete because I started using them back in 1967. Um, Is it perhaps but, though the longest running? Appa? I don't know. I asked George Phillies who is older in fandom than I am and he doesn't know. So I can't tell you. Uh, I can only tell you that this is what I've been doing. Um, I asked on Facebook. Barry says he, Barry, come on over here where he can vaguely see you. Barry says he asked on Facebook. Yeah. Go on. Barry, Barry joined Lasfus when? 1964. In 1964, three years before I did. Go on. Uh, and they... 
they pointed to a couple of APAs, uh, including SAPs, which basically have gone from the 40s or 50s until the present time. But not under the same leadership. No, those those have uh, uh, elect a new uh, official editor every year. Right. So it's complicated. Okay. And I mean, not only like do you are you the editor, but I mean, you're the distributor uh, and along the with the editor their... is the distributor. I'm the editor, the owner and the publisher. But Barry does the stapling for you. But Barry has been doing the stapling ever since I think it was whiplash number six. I've been rear ended about 12 times. And that has the effect of uh, damaging your neck. And somewhere after number uh, whiplash number six, I told Barry that he would now get to do the uh, uh, stapling. Well, to be honest with you, the uh, a, a doctor told me I also have arthritis there. I choose to blame the whiplashes. That's a lot but of uh, that's a lot of whiplashes. Hopefully, not, uh, yeah, it is. I don't approve of it, but no. they didn't consult me and get my permission to be rear-ended that often. It just happened. And not to move too far away from the A&E, but like, so that's impressive. And then also just your historic knowledge of like feudal Japan times and also well, a Viking era well, Norse mythology. We've, we've had lots of Japanese campaigns in different eras. We've had a campaign on snafelness in Iceland. It's in uh, Northwest Iceland where I explored the relationship of the Aesir and mortals, and to some extent played around with things which I ended up reusing in the uh, Valhalla trilogy. You know, you've had a long career in fantasy writing, um, game development, and the, and the mm -hmm. a &E, and so, most people would be happy to just rest on their successes. And all of a sudden now you're writing a trilogy. How did that happen? I've always loved the Norse myths. Yeah. And after playing in a uh, game using the Norse myths for some time, I began getting interested in what I could do with them. And it occurred to me, that I could do something with a heroine who went to Valhalla and started her heroism there. So she was a role player, a D&D &D player, and she gets picked up after dying heroically in a hospital fire. And she finds herself outside Valhalla and she says to the gate guardians, I don't understand. I was never a fighter. I don't know anything about fighting with a sword except what I did in D&D. &D. And they say to her, they poisoned you. And she says, yeah, I had chemotherapy. 
They burned you. Yes, she says. I had radiation poison. I had radiation. And they say, what was the third one? They cut you. Yeah, I had operations. We can teach you the techniques of sword fighting. We can't teach you courage. The the main character, Robin, I believe, is yes. the main character's name. Yes, it is. Um, how much how much did you put in of your own kind of personal stake in Robin? As far as like, you know, uh, a, a a young girl that played Dungeons and Dragons and Robin was someone who I, this used to be legal. I don't know if it still is. When she found out that she had cancer that kept coming back and back and back, decided that the best way to get insurance for it was to keep going to the university and changing her major again and again. Because at least at one time when I was at UCLA, you got free health insurance. Yeah. It's really hard these before Obamacare. And I don't know how long Obamacare is going to last these days to keep getting health insurance if you have a unless you have a job. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to have a job if you keep getting having to take time off. Yeah. But if you could manage to somehow turn in your papers and keep being a student at a university, then you get covered. So that's what I said Robin did. I don't know if it would still work if you kept uh, not getting your uh, papers in, but maybe you could get professors who would let you off. I don't know, but I was prepared to be sweet about it. And it was interesting that Taxol, which is the sap of the yew tree, which is one of the trees identified with the uh, world tree in Norse mythology, is a cancer treatment. I Mm. thought that was neat. Yeah. So I gave that to Robin and said, that there was a big earthquake, which is perfectly logical in Southern California. And she got up off her bed, unhooked herself and started taking people out of the hospital and then walking back into the fire. That sounds heroic. Um, So in just in closing, now that uh, we've, you know, discussed your, your long journey with A&E, you're writing the third book in the Valhalla trilogy do you look at your life's work as like uh like a pretty incredible um you early days of science fiction writing and uh it's uh do you do you take a step back and go wow i did some really really good stuff and i'm pretty proud of it i think i've had fun um basically i've only tried to do stuff i thought i'd enjoy you have to under Well, maybe you don't. I've done what seemed interesting at the time. I've done what I thought I could do well at the time. If I 
turned around at some point and said, this isn't working. Yeah. I'm not doing a good job of this. I've stopped. Yeah. As we're, you know, closing off our uh, interview today, I just, you know, I want to say just thank you sure. very much for your time um, sure. and your contribution to uh, the industry and the, the, the world in general, science fiction, fantasy, and uh, you were very much a forerunner um, in this world. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, this interview can kind of shine light on that because uh, it's you were definitely a, a groundbreaking person. So thank you for that. Sure. I've just always done what I thought would be fun. <laughs>